Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and to encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically very friendly tribal animals. We like hanging around with one another. Look at what we do. We like to go to ball games together, picnics together, whether it's golf together or sewing circles together, or reading together or eating together, or doing projects together. The vast majority of us really are cooperative and collaborative. But at the very same time, we can't be Pollyanna about how friendly and cooperative we are because we have to acknowledge that there are a percentage of us who are very different. They are predators, they are avaricious, and they would have us be their subjects rather than be citizens. And it's our job as the friendly, cooperative, tribal people we are to be ever mindful of these people who would take us over and would have us be their subjects. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of having with us Dr. Anthony Tony Osis or Bossis, depending on whether you ask his dad or his mom, (laughs) because what he told me prior to our coming on air is there's actually a difference in his family about the pronunciation of his dad's last name, and we had a good chuckle about that prior to the program. But he is proudly of Greek ancestry, which is really a, really so wonderful because I love reading about it. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Tony. Thank you so much, Richard. A pleasure to be here. Tony, what is on your internal radar screen? What's catching your interest in life nowadays? Many things in this incredible zeitgeist we find ourselves in, Richard, but as I've been deeply involved in and more so each day, it seems, in psychedelic research, how are we going to implement that into a culture such as ours? And my primary interest in, in conducting research here at NYU is with people at the end of life, people with palliative care who are suffering from significant existential spiritual distress as one approaches the end of this a short, brief, beautiful thing we have here. And I'm also fascinated by the experience itself. So to that end, we're about to publish this year a study administering high-dose psilocybin to religious leaders in an effort to continue to map out the phenomenality of this experience. What is this experience? And then part of both of those topics is what we found so far in the research with psilocybin in these clinical trials is this mystical experience or peak experience, as Maslow called it, it seems to correlate with a better outcome. And so why would that be? What is it about consciousness that has this seemingly spiritual essence. And when a certain experience is, is achieved, we're seeing better outcome levels in end-of-life distress and other applications as well. So that has been my world for a while. And I live in an exciting time, my friend, that I'm, how do you not be bored by what this current world is giving us right now? So a couple of questions. 
when you said high-dose psilocybin, give us some numbers. What's a high-dose? Sure. So we began this research going back almost 20 years already, when it was really very quiet and only a few few people doing this. We were given a tale to the weight of the person. It was milligrams per kilogram, and we'll get into the, the, the formula. But it was, it was roughly around 25 milligrams of synthesized psilocybin, which we're using now. But in those early days, we get much higher doses. People were getting doses 30, 40 milligrams and higher, 50, in controlled studies. And we learned over time, and, and Hopkins did a, a wonderful study looking at a variety of doses from small to large to see the differences. And it turns out there is a sweet spot, Richard. Somewhere in that 25 milligram synthesized range, give or take in some people, it's, it's high enough to trigger what we call this peak or mystical experience, a very dramatic altered state of consciousness that we'll talk about, but not too large where it just creates so much somatic arousal and 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 states where people have a hard time navigating that, and not too low, where it might be pleasantly an aesthetic experience, but not trigger that that peak state. So now most research in America and in Europe is in that 25 milligram range. But when we began, it was quite, it was even higher. But 25 milligrams will generate this mystical or peak experience that I could I could define in a moment. The reason I'm zeroing in right away on dosage is because People are listening to this, they're listening to you, and they really want to know, because what we've been dealing with, as you well know, around the country and around the world, are people dealing with an illegal substance, and they don't know what the heck they're getting, right? And they're dealing, some people are dealing with mushrooms that are wet, that weigh more, and some people are dealing with mushrooms that are dry and weigh less, and some people are grinding their mushrooms up and making powder, and then some people are able to get the synthesized psilocybin that you're able to use in the laboratory. And so now, here in California, Tony, we have people who are manufacturing and selling chocolate bars uh, with psilocybin, and they have dosage on the outside, and they're saying three grams is this amount, Five grams will give you this feeling. It says so right on the outside of the package. And seven grams is heroic. But obviously, the seven-gram heroic that they're putting on the labels here in California are not the same as the 25 milligrams that you're talking about of synthetic. Can you comment on that? I, I can, but I also want to be clear from the outset that I... I I'm just I'm addressing the doses we use in the FDA clinical trials. Right. I don't want to come across as how to recommend people in the culture at large how to do this and what dose to take. These are strictly in clinical trials and whether you can control it. 25 milligrams is roughly three to four grams of what people would call mushrooms, uh, three to five in that range. But yeah, I want to keep be clear. I'm talking about clinical trials and not, not at all recommending people outside of it how to take it or what dose to take. Understood. That's quite understood. But I'm just letting you know that people are listening and they're trying to find guidelines from real scientists like yourself. Understood, but I'm I'm not giving them guidelines. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Let's move on. You mentioned that having a peak experience was highly correlated with better, what you called better outcome. Tell us how you're measuring good, bad, and better outcome. Yeah, that, that's a great question, and uh, it gives a, a little bit of a, a chance to discuss a, a remarkable history that I, I know you know about. 
So when this research began back in the 1960s and even before, but in the 50s, well, when it began with alcoholics and people with terminal cancer, which were the two for were the two primary indications to grow out of that incredible first wave of researchers with Stan Groff and Walter Pankey and and Bill Richards and, and so many wonderful pioneers. They they found early on, and part of this was through a, a study called the Good Friday Experiment that I know you know about, where they gave psilocybin to young theology students. But they found that early on that this mystical experience, and it can be called the peak experience, what Maslow called it. And there was a scale device way back when, 1962, which we still use today, which is remarkable. It's called the MEQ. It's a mystical experience questionnaire. It's been revised and validated through years of scientific study with it, and Hopkins particularly. The key features of this are a unity, a sense that all is connected to the person's subjective sense, everything's interconnected, that we're not separate as we think we are or experience ourselves as being. One is a sense of sacredness, awe, humility. There's a feature called the noetic quality, as if one is, which is a term, by the way, coined by William James, as if one is encountering ultimate reality, and it speaks with profound authority. People rarely come out of our trials, out of the session, and say to us, that was good or bad or indifferent, but it was a drug effect. It's more as though that that was more real than this consensus reality. That was part of ultimate reality. Ineffability is another feature. Very People have a very hard time describing what happened, although they do an incredible job of keeping a journal. And the mystics, the mystics throughout the arc of history have done a good job at describing these states, but there is a, a sense of ineffability. And importantly, is the sense of transcendence. People report a sense of transcending the body as we know it, some will say transcending past, present, and future into a very altered, transcendent state of consciousness. We can get back into that in terms of the cancer patients. But those features, they, they learned early on in the first cancer studies, when a person had that experience, the outcome, the decrease in depression, anxiety, the distress was greater. So something about that experience, those, those features that mediated or predicted a, a greater outcome. And we picked up with that a half a century later, and we're finding in our studies so far with cancer patients that those who had the mystical experience as measured by this MEQ had a higher degree of, of reduction in depression, anxiety, hopelessness, demoralization, and I can get more into that in a little bit. But I want to be clear, there are other experiences that may not be that mystical experience complete level, but are still very therapeutic. People will have experiences of revisiting parts of their lifetime, resolving unresolved, seemingly have been unresolved conflicts, a sense of forgiveness, a profound experiences of love. So those don't need to be only in this, in this mystical experience dimension, but it's, it's fascinating that this, this experience has been linked with greater outcomes. And that's what we're, we're looking into as we, as we go. I want to talk to you about frequency of the experience, because we all know that in Roland Griffith's early experimentation, they tested people for depression before, then they gave them one dose of psilocybin, and one year later, there was still, there was still improvement. We, we know that study. Right. How, how often are you finding it's important or necessary to give additional doses, or what is your protocol for frequency of dose in the, in the studies you've done. Best. What's going yeah. to get you the best bang for the buck? Yeah. So at Hopkins and NYU, our cancer trial, they were published together in 2016. 
it was just one dose of a higher dose of psilocybin versus a placebo or a control arm. And they said it was a very low dose. And I remember the trial, it was, it was nice. And there wasn't a repeat dose a year later, but they did measure people a year later. And I think you're referring to that. In other trials, they're giving people two doses. In a religious leaders trial, we, who are healthy people, two separate doses. But one dose at, at the, that can trigger this experience has been shown to be enough, clearly, in, these, in this research and going back half a century. I want to point out quickly that this experience is not just for psychedelics. It's really, really important that we establish early on. This is an experience that's been found throughout the human civilization. Most think, Aldous Huxley with his well-known perennial philosophy, that these experiences lie in part at the mystical core of the great religions. And throughout time, people have these experiences naturally occurring. We can have these in smaller episodes, not the big four-hour psychedelic-generated way. Being in love, being in the woods, spontaneous, playing music. There, there are many ways that humans have these, these, these peak or transcendent experiences that seem to be part of who we are, Richard. We seem to be wired for meaning, which is incredible. And why would that be? And what is consciousness? But in these studies, we can generate that experience. And about two-thirds of the patients generate that complete mystical experience. So that's, that's been so fascinating to observe. In my own experience, I certainly have had transcendent experiences, as you point out, with other experiences in life than psychedelics, such as feeling strongly in love or making it down a ski slope in a particular way. I have had them. That said, there is no experience in my entire 84 years, including ecstatic orgasm, that compares to the unity, the sacredness, and the transcendence, and the ineffability that you describe yeah. from a psychedelic, because I have had all four of those things, and they are incomparable in my experience, particularly the transcendence, the feeling, yeah. very strong subjective feeling that I am a consciousness completely separate from a material existence and that time does not exist in a, in, in a, a transcendent being in a timeless in a timeless situation and definitely unified with everything else just as you described yeah. the four things you described hit me exactly from what I've had with psilocybin and and with LSD no question and to a certain extent with ayahuasca but I, th I think psilocybin grasped it. You, you've made mention now several times to a topic that I'd really like to go much deeper into, which is the use of these psychedelics with end-of-life people. So share, share some stories about that, please, yeah, Tony. Sure. Thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's at the heart of what I've been interested in. And I do think while these medicines are going to be shown and are showing already in some trials, to be useful in a variety of psychiatric disorders. It seems to me and to many others that this really is, is the perfect fit. And uh, it, is, it seems it is because these medicines, even in a healthy young person, they seem to draw us into consciousness in a way that it introduces and almost walks us through at times existentially oriented landscapes. It brings people into who aren't even at the end of life into themes around impermanence, death, death, rebirth, grief, 
recalibrating what matters. So you take those themes and apply them to a person who's has a life-threatening disease or at the end of life, and, and they're and they're profoundly important. And to that end, we're actually starting a new trial that I can talk about with in palliative care for people at the end of life. This was the, one of the first indications going back to half a century. It was something Aldous Huxley talked about, who I consider a godfather of the of the field of sorts. And we, we picked up from their trials going back half a century to the new trials, which the only ones to date published are one at UCLA with Charlie Grobe, the Hopkins team, and our team at NYU. And I've worked in palliative care in my career. And as we've gotten better at chemotherapies, we're better at pain management, we really have a paucity of tools to help people with this existential, emotional, psychological angst, distress, terror, whatever you want to call it, at the idea of, of this of this body, of this life ending. So the, that, that seems to me just a, an incredible application of, of these therapies. So our trial, we published 2016, and there are a few more coming out soon. We've looked at one dose of, of psilocybin at that higher level dose with people with cancer in the first trial. Now we're going to expand it to all, dis- all diseases that can cause the end of a life. And it's important to, 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 to mention the, the sentence setting. So for listeners, we're not saying you just give it to a drug and they go home and take it and have a therapeutic experience. What's been found to be important, and again, we get this from our pioneers a half a century ago, is people are, are screened, of course, carefully in our studies for different psychiatric and medical exclusionary issues. There's a, a really important preparation period where two therapists sit with the person, review their life, their intention for being in the trial, which matters, how cancer has affected them, why they're coming into the trial, talking about their fear, talking about the, the anticipated loss of, of connection with, with this life. Then there's an all-day psilocybin session where we give the dose and there's two therapists there the entire time. We're monitoring their vitals. They're safe. The best of days, we're doing very little. We're not saying much, but we're there being very present and providing assurance and care as needed while they're, they're recommended to go into the experience, into the unfolding changes in consciousness. And they wear eye shades and headphones as the point of that is to direct attention inward. They can always take them off and sit up and talk if they have to, but that's the encouraged model. Then there's weeks of, of integration, of addressing what happened. And in the NYU trial and, and Hopkins as well, we found up to 80% of the patients by the end of the trial had dramatic reductions in depression and hopelessness. And a really important construct I want to talk about called demoralization. Our new trial is going to use that as a primary variable. Demoralization is an awful experience where it's, it's, the features are an existential loss of meaning, a, a sense of personal burden, a, a loss of hope, uh, this lack of uh, the capacity for meaning making. And we, we know when people have that, that's not even treatable by psychopharmacology for the most part. Major depression can be treated in some part by medication. This syndrome, demoralization syndrome, is not responsive to that. And so what we know it responds to is a meaning-making. And my take on all of this, and people ask, what do psychedelics do? And there's a lot of media now out there, Richard, you know this. I think in the end, it recalibrates the suffering. It provides a a profound sense of meaning-making through this transcendent state. And it really changes one's view on what, what, what... it just challenges the assumptions about what life and death and the self are. And that, that has profound implications for a person who's, who's dying. 
whose experiences when my body dies, then then whatever myself is stops. And we've seen all these experiences to, that people have insights that are really helpful, and I, and I could talk about them. And, and you mentioned briefly transcendence also in, ter- in response to what I was saying. For the person whose body is about to stop working, within a month, a year, two years, through a through a terminal disease, and by this incredibly kind of transcendent experience, pulling the lens back, so to speak, and seeing themselves in a much larger panoramic landscape, it has the capacity to recalibrate suffering. It really does. And and so we see a host of effects, and we could talk about them. But we do, we do hear a lot about connectivity, that we're all connected. Love is, it's always funny to be a scientist talking about love all the time, but I'm glad I am. And that's what they tell us. They tell us it's a profound experience, not just loving kindness towards self as their life ends and a sense of forgiveness for all the ways they feel that they've fallen short and we're all falling short in this life, but a loving kindness towards others, even to those who may have done them harm decades ago. And then people speak about this incredible love or agape, I used the Greek word there, that is all of existence. So we hear this very spiritual language that you read about again in the mystic traditions and in scripture and we hear it in a scientific in a, in a scientific study. P- people have a, a more profound way of accepting death, Richard. They may not know that consciousness continues, or some say they, some say they, they feel as though it continues after the body stops. But there's an incredible sense of accepting the mystery of whatever does happen. And to hear that over and over again, that somehow it's going to be okay, is a remarkable thing to hear from someone who just weeks prior was extremely anxious. I, I think of the great, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Huxley fan and I'm a Thomas Merton fan, the great Christian mystic. And there's a great letter from Huxley to Merton where Merton had, had asked Huxley about psychedelics. Why, you know, why do you promote their use? And, and part of his answer, Huxley says to Thomas Merton, in the end, that despite all the suffering of this world, and even uses the word evil, which is interesting because he didn't use words loosely, despite all the difficulties of being a human being. He goes, these experiences show us that in the end, it's all going to be all right. And then he goes on to say, it's all love and it's all God. But that sense of it's going to be okay to hear someone talk to you about it the day after the experience has always been very striking. So those are some of the experiences. We, we can go more into the uh, study. So I, you know, I, I do think that hopefully in a number of years, there are, there are places people can go to at the end of life, or you're young and you have a a very serious diagnosis and and the terror of that brings you to a a very difficult space to go, have preparation, have a safe protocol, have a session. That's the hope in a a safe way. So we'll see. It's kind of a a wild landscape out there in the field, but we're we're very hopeful that the FDA studies are going forward and we're looking forward to the next steps. Is it important that we know the genesis of the demoralization, of the anxiety, of the depression that that so many people experience at end of life when they know they're transitioning. The genesis meaning why they why they feel demoralized. What, what are, yeah what are, what are they afraid of and where does this fear come from? Who that we're not born afraid of dying. We're born living. But somewhere along the line, a significant percentage of us become afraid, depressed, 
and in your astute words, demoralized by this yeah. end. Who's teaching us that? Where is it coming from? And it's important that we know that so that we can do some prevention work and not just been treating people for the anxiety, depression, and moralization, but have them get there in advance so they're prepared for it because we're all going to deal with it. Great, great point. Some of that may be about my pay grade as to why we come in and evolve into that space. But clearly, Ernest Becker, the denial of death, it's just, a, sadly, it's been the final human, it's the final taboo, right? And, that, and that's unfortunate. We all, we all, we all are going to die. I think death is our greatest teacher in part because by aware of that, we get to live more fully by being aware and be present with this is a fleeting existence, at least this material one. It allows us to really live preciously in each moment. And what people tell us out of the study is that even though I'm, I have a fatal diagnosis, I'm more alive now than ever. And I think that goes back to what you're saying. How do we, how do we keep that experience up throughout life? And the fear, yeah, the fear of not being, the fear of losing connection with others, the fear of the unknown. Is it's it, an incredible is topic. It, is it, but who's teaching us to be afraid? Uh, schools, parents, religion? Politics? Who are the teachers? Who is sending this message to be so anxious and afraid about a natural occurrence? We're not being taught to be afraid of drinking water or eating or urinating and defecating. I guess we are being taught to be afraid of sex, so that would fit in with dying. But I, I, I search for who are these great teachers that are pushing this negative view on us so that we're scared? Of, and what's what's so what's big for me, what's so large, is that this fear is being taught about something that we're all going to have to deal with. Yeah. It's not like a small percentage will and a small and a big percentage won't. It's coming to all of us. So it's it's coming to all of us. And what's remarkable is that in, in all of us is sometimes that feeling that, but not me. Well, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. It's very it, wide. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it blows now, me away. You, all why is human beings who are, who are brilliant, intellectually brilliant, there's this sense, and maybe it's adaptive, maybe it's a evolutionary wired impulse, so we, not me. But I, I think the way you're speaking clearly, and I hope we're heading into a, a period in the culture and society where we do take a healthier look at this. And that's certainly an area I've been working in. And, and I think this, these, this medicine and these experiences help inform that and, and people in the studies say this. They come out, Richard, with these comments. It's the natural cycle. We're born. We have a short period of life. Hopefully exactly. The and then we leave. And, and, they, and when I said earlier, they accept their mystery. It's in the context of that. And you, and you ask them, why are you no longer anxious? And they say, I now have a really true, authentic feeling, not just intellectual, because they knew that going into it, that this is the way it's been for eternity and I'm, I'm okay with the, the the design of this now that's hard to live fully in ordinary consciousness but these experiences do are sustained with these people with these patients yeah many years later who survived up to four years later who we revisited said those insights were sustained and of course there's doubt doubt creeps in i think doubt is a healthy spiritual tool but yeah that, that's that's the goal how do we recalibrate re-educate and make death and dying more part of a conversation versus just don't just don't think about it, don't talk about it, and where that comes from. I'll t my theory of where it comes from, Tony, yeah. yeah, is that it comes from religion. 
and in the following way. In order to control people's behavior, religion came up with the idea of threatening people about what will happen in the afterlife. You will either go to a beautiful place where there'll be angels playing harps waiting for you, or you'll go to the fires of hell. And every one of us knows that we've done at least one thing in our lifetime that's deserving of going to hell. So therefore, when it comes time to go, they've instilled massive fear amongst the population of whether they're going to go to the bad place. And that's what they're afraid of. And that's my theory on it. And as long as we, as long as we promote that there's a bad place that we may go as well as just a place, we're going to instill that fear in the population. Now, you're doing work. 100%, by the way, 100% agreement on that. Yeah, you're doing work to help people who already have that fear. A question for you, sir, is might using the psychedelics work as a preventative towards ever getting the fear? And let me tell you why I'm asking that question. It's very personal. I started using psychedelics in the mid-60s when I was influenced while teaching at Michigan by my colleagues at Harvard, Leary and Alpert. And so they were doing those experiments. I started using psychedelics. By 1972, when I lived, 70 rather, a few years later, living in San Francisco, or maybe 69, my license plate personalized was Be Kind. I'm sure that came from the psychedelic use, just like you mentioned, be kind, that it, it, it comes out of these, these sessions. Yeah. This past year, some 50-plus years later of self-experimenting, mostly sub rosa, with psychedelics, I had two life-threatening diagnoses, hmm. metastatic melanoma of the nodula type, and heart failure. For those of you who are familiar with heart failure, my ejection fraction was 34. Normal is 55 to 70. Right. For those of you who don't know that stuff, the ejection fraction measures the volume that the left ventricle can pump of oxygenated blood to the system with every stroke. So it's pump, 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 and normal is to be able to pump 55 to 70 percent of your ventricle with that life-sustaining oxygen, which is basically our fuel to the entire system. When you get down to 34, you're not pumping enough to keep the system going. You go, it, you're called being in heart failure. Okay, what I'm leading up to, Tony, is the way I dealt with this, these two life-threatening diagnoses, was to continue going about my everyday life just like I ever went about my everyday life, living every day, as I often do, that it might be the last day. Because reality is, every day might be the last day. I've had friends not wake up the, the next day. I had my dearest friend from graduate school go into the shower in his early 60s, and not to scare you because you're in your 60s, but he went into the shower and never came out. It was quite an experience for me. Yeah. Another friend recently went into a swimming pool with his beautiful wife, Dr. David Geisinger. That was the end in the swimming pool. 
So we know, I don't have to give these examples, everybody knows them, we don't know we're gonna wake up. But what I did with the life-threatening illnesses was simply go about living my day and, and never look back. And I'm raising the question as to what extent my experiences with psychedelics, my feeling of unity, sacredness, ineffability, and transcendence created this attitude in me so that when the terminal diagnoses came, or at least threatening terminal diagnoses, because I'm still here, I just dealt with it like another day. Something might happen in the future. Yes, I might, have, I might die of cancer. Something might happen in the future. Tomorrow I may not wake up because I'm in heart failure. But it, I didn't let it harsh my mellow or, or ruin my day. Mm. And by the way, end of story, I'm really glad, I'm really very thankful that I was able to take that attitude and really mean it and keep with it, keep seeing patients, writing my books, doing my radio program, loving my wife and my kids. I'm not exaggerating what I'm saying. Every day was yeah. a day. And are you saying, you feel as though those, that perspective you sustained clearly, I think you're implying this, was from your prior insights with the psychedelics. I can't be certain, of course, because I'm only an N of one, but I am theorizing based on, on what you're telling me and what other scientists are telling me they're finding with people that the psychedelics served as both a preventative as also an educator. Right. They both taught me as well as actually changed me in terms of my attitude towards natural phenomenon. It also changed me to exactly in your words, this, this all encompassing feeling of interconnectedness with every other human being and everything on the planet. It actually changed me from seeing us as living on the planet, which I always thought, to seeing us as being a part of the planet. We're just like a, a, an aspect of it. We're not living on it. It's not a ball that we're sitting on. It's an organism that we're incorporated into. That came to me also. And so I, I raised that question. How the heck was I able to, to get through this with such serenity? And so I'm pointing to this experience because it fits in with the model that you're talking about. And if yeah. that's the case, then I would say, hopefully there's room for esteemed scientists such as yourself to research the possibility of using these medicines as preventatives, not just for after the fact healing. Yeah, so clearly, and yeah, you, and I'm, I'm, I'm very heartened by your incredible experience and i'm very heartened that you're still here with me today and yes we all have i had recently something like you're you're describing to happen a good friend we're texting and he says i don't feel well and there was, there was no tomorrow morning for him that was it we said goodbye we we don't know it's interesting so one people in the study have talked about a sustained experience like that one woman who was most people had an advanced cancer one or two were in remission but has crippled anxiety crippling anxiety one of those patients had a reoccurring cancer, a different form of cancer years later, but the insights from this experience did sustain and allow her to move through the second bout with a, a greater sense of equanimity 
as you're talking about. I'm also, I've been very interested in doing some work with near-death experiences. I'm sure you are too. And we know from those studies, people who, for the listener who is not familiar with this work, people who are confirmed cardiac death and are resuscitated through medical intervention or, or spontaneously come back to cardiac health. And there are different ranges, but we think 10 to 20% of people come back with some of these near-death experiences that are not dissimilar from the psychedelic one. They're, they're, they're dissimilar in some ways, but the values are the same. The sense of when they come back to consciousness of love, of connection, of not to be, not, not to have fear. And that sustains, we know that people with NDEs for the rest of their life seem to be less afraid as you're pointing out. So uh, yeah, I, I do agree. I, I think the, if these experiences are had earlier in life, uh, that ideally would help someone recalibrate them, but a greater sense of equanimity walking through this incredible life where people just crippled a fear of the end. George Harrison famously said at the end of his life, he said in the very last days, you, you can't wait till the end to prepare for this. It's going to be a <laughs> lifelong journey. And uh, Richard Buck, Richard Maurice Buck's work from Canada, you must know his work, right? 1902, he, he wrote a great book I, I recommend to the listeners, Cosmic Consciousness. He had a spontaneous, naturally occurring mystical experience. He was a good friend of Walt Whitman. He wrote this great book about the states of awareness, but he spoke profoundly about his fear of death was gone. And, and he said, there's no death. There is no death. And so we do see that also naturally occurring mystical experiences going back for centuries with mystics. But yes, this is an incredible experience. And, and again, I, I think one of the more, maybe the most important implications of what you're saying, if that fear is taken out and we can live more fully without that existential thing hanging around our necks for a lifetime, that's a gift. That, that's a gift. To, it's a gift to, 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 to being human. It's that fear you're talking about for a lifetime. It's really a Damocles sword hanging over the neck of humanity, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Question for you, coming on to something else you said. You talked about how you screen people, which of course is important. Our audience wants to know who gets screened out, Tony. What, For example, when I was in cardiac failure, would I have been screened out? Because I'll tell you what I did was I, I upped my use of psychedelics. But I have a feeling I might have been screened out, but I've been talking to researchers about it. Tell us in general what kind of people are screened out. Should not people should, who should who should be really careful in the public about using this? Sure, and maybe you should add a caveat that you don't recommend your listeners in heart failure to take a high dose of psychedelics. So there, there are a fair okay. Amount. One one second. Okay, everybody, you heard Tony say that we are not recommending those of you in heart failure to take right. psychedelics. Thank you, Tony. Go right, on. Right. I'm trying, protect, I'm trying to protect you here. Thank you. Thank you. I need it. I need it. I talk too much. You got a good show. So it's it's a great question. And I we can speak a bit also about the, I don't know what to call it, the the enthusiasm about psychedelics in the culture. And I, and I get it. These are profound experiences humans can have. However, there, there are risks. And there are, there are a lot of psychological risks. And this can be a horrible experience without the proper preparation. Even in our studies, even with proper set and setting, there are very difficult experiences. But they... They they move towards insight by going through to dark night of the soul, so to speak, to use the spiritual metaphor. People get insight, but they're in a safe setting. So psychologically, it can be very distressful. Physically, there, there are things we, we do roll out for. You mentioned heart. So th there is there are some cardiac risks for high-dose psilocybin. 
and other compounds that I don't work with as well. Heart rate can get really high. We've seen that. So if someone came into the trial with a known arrhythmia history, particularly ventricular arrhythmia history, that would be an exclusionary criteria. And as most people with arrhythmia histories that are dangerous don't know. We see these news clips once every once in a while of a young teenage athlete on the, on the football field in high school it drops a sudden death. And some of them are just these fatal arrhythmias that the person didn't know. So that's that's a concern. Same with blood pressure. It can go very high during the peak of the experience. So there's a six-hour arc to the psilocybin trajectory. It begins gentle, and it, it begins to increase in its psychological effects and, and the kind of the roller coaster begins to take off to this altered state, a very ontological shift. It's about a three-hour peak experience, and then they're, or two hours, and they're coming down. During that peak, we see heart rate and blood pressure go up quite significantly. How and high, John? Rate, how Heart rates can go past 100 easily. Blood pressure can go past diastolic. The lower number can go up to 80, 90, to 100. So you're seeing high numbers that in a person with... And what, is, what, what, is, what does systolic go up to? We see high numbers. Now I'm speaking off the cuff a little bit here. 160, 150, you get a high number. Okay. The reason I'm asking specifically, there's a reason, Tony, because I recently interviewed Andrew Penn. Do you know him at at Cal? You know Andrew. Okay. So he told me that in all their psilocybin studies, as they're watching, watching blood pressure and heart rate, went up just like you're describing, but never went up beyond the parameters they set so that they gave the person a medication to either drop the blood pressure or the heart rate. So the increase was what they considered to be within acceptable parameters. Is that true for your research as well? Or have you had to? No, we've never had to administer a drug. We've never had to stop a session because of the screening. So we're screening out untreated hypertension, untreated heart rate issues. And in a healthy person, you'll elevate your blood pressure and heart rate. And they're fine. We have, we've had no serious adverse effects or events. However, what? the reason why I say it is in a person with undiagnosed arrhythmia history or hypertension, that could lead to a different outcome. Right. Uh, now, what about psychological reasons for vetting people out? Right. So, again, it's, it's important to know that when we began this a couple of years ago. Move a little to your right, Tony. A oops, little to oops, your right. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. It's, it's hard to believe. It's only been a few years since we began, but it's everywhere now. But there aren't many studies done yet. We're still in the infancy. But early on, we had a lot of rule-outs because we're being careful. These are pilot trials. As we move forward, we're, we're, we're loosening some of the ones that may have been too restrictive. But in terms of psychiatric or psychological exclusionary criteria, in the earlier trials, we, are ruling it, we did rule out suicidality. We did rule out people with psychotic spectrum histories of a psychotic disorder, even with a, a first-degree relative who might have schizophrenia. It's very typical for an older adult for this to trigger that kind of episode. But younger people could, as you probably know, something called first-break psychosis occurs probably in late teens, early 20s of most young people. It will likely happen back in the first in the 1960s when it was a more of a cultural conversation and problem. It's likely some young people who may have been on track for a, a break a psychotic break somewhere in their late teens or early 20s had the experience and it may have facilitated that. So for young people, particularly, we're, we're careful. For older, less of an issue. So we're elucidating some of the criteria in the studies. But there's a careful look at, at that. Now, as there are trials treating difficult depression. So 
they're being targeted in, in a way that's focused. But for our trials with, with the cancer, we were very careful about that. And a number of other things, more complicated medical exclusionary stuff, even cardiopulmonary obstruction, things like pulmonary obstruction disorder, brain, brain issues, brain meds. We wouldn't do cancer with the brain, any kind of severe cognitive symptom, because if that became to get more disoriented during the experience, how would we differentiate what's the pre-existing cognitive or brain issue versus what, what's the medicine doing? So there was a fair amount of, of rule outs, but as we go forward, we're, we're, we're seeing how, what, what can we keep in and what, what can we keep out? Have, do you have any comment on research with psychedelics and Alzheimer's, or is that too new? It's a, it's a great question. It's, it's not my expertise. It's funny. Years ago, people would ask about that, and my knee-jerk response was, it didn't make sense. Now, of course, I, I was wrong. There are very smart clinicians starting trials. There's one at Hopkins starting, people with dementia. Now, I, I think the degree of it, of course, matters. But so we'll see. The, the indications being thought about are just endless. It's, it's, it's an incredible time. Yeah. Eating disorders, major depression, alcoholism, of course, end-of-life anxiety, pain, chronic pain, possibly, which was looked at many years ago, actually, in the 1960s as well. So I, I think the, the indications are growing. However, it just seems the end-of-life indications seem such a, a fit because of the nature of this experience. In 1968... I opened up a clinic in San Francisco. This is after I left teaching at Michigan. And it was called the Gestalt Institute for Multiple Psychotherapy. And it was a confusing title, of course. <laughs> and and it's it's confusing <laughs> to me. It's confusing to me now. But but what it meant, Tony, was in every session there were two therapists. Multiple therapists is what it was about. And I learned this from the Atlanta Psychiatric Clinic, which at the time was headed up by Carl Whitaker and John Warkington. And uh, they were doing pioneering work. So we set up this clinic, two therapists in every session. It was very powerful. There was no question. It was exponentially beyond what one person could do. But we had to close the technique. And why is that? The expense. It's inordinate to have two doctors in the same room with one patient. Who, how many? We'd be treating only the, the 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 super wealthy people, which did not fit with my politics coming from Manhattan. So, it just didn't work for me. Now, there is a protocol being used by Hopkins, by yourself, and by others around the country, and I'm sure it's to show the government ultra safety by having two therapists in these sessions. But as a model, Tony, it's not practical. We can't be offering people around the country that you have to go to two therapists. In fact, I think we're going to have to figure out a way to do psychedelics with group therapy if we're going to be able to really expand it at all. What are your thoughts on this? It's a really important question. It it, it dovetails into the larger conversation of what, what lies ahead. How are we, if indeed these trials go well, as they are going so far, and the FDA does in a a number of years reschedule these medicines for prescription use, how do we scale up in the way that you're implying, both for cost and for efficiency, as well as how do we scale up the training of all the therapists? So one of the answers seems to be what you're hitting on 
is the group model. There, there's, a, there's a center in Baltimore that is doing, just completed actually a study with a group model for, for cancer distress with psilocybin. And the way that they work is all the patients in the, in the study go through the preparation phase as a group, which in addition to being efficient and cost-saving is very powerful because you're hearing each other's experiences and, and, you, and you learn from that. The sessions themselves are separate. They're not done in a group that has some problems to that potentially, but they're all having their dosing on the same day on this, they have a beautiful floor there at their center. And there is a one guide in the room, I believe it is, but they're all being watched on video, on, on a screen also to help in a way. So that that's cost saving and, and, and more efficient. And then they integrate together as a group again hearing each other's experiences and going from there. So that isn't published yet, but that will clearly have a role in this, as you're saying. This model is, how do you scale that up? But that's, there's a lot of questions we don't have answers for, including how does this look in five, 10, 20 years? How do, how do we implement these medicines and this experience into a culture such as ours in a way that's safe? And that's not so easily answered. There has to be structures and frameworks to house these numinous experiences, to quote Rudolf Otto and Cole Jung, they're, they're profound healing components, but it's not child's play and they need to be done in a very serious way. And how do we develop these frameworks going forward? And it's going to be a really important question. I hope as a culture, we could rise to the rise to it and, and find a way to do this, but it's, it's going to be tricky. As I do know. You mentioned that you started your research with psilocybin 20 years 20 years ago was the dark ages in the in, in psychedelic research. How did you, it, and when I say the dark ages, there are certain topics in psychiatry and psychology that are so taboo that they are considered career enders. Yeah. yeah. Hypnosis used to be one of those. <laughs> I remember when I met, met the famous Hillgard from Stanford, who developed the, the Stanford Hypnotic Suggestibility Scale. And he gave a lecture on hypnosis to me in graduate school. And I said to him, most of your career, you were a rat psychologist. And just in recent years, you started with hypnosis. How did that come about? And he said, it was simple, Richard. If I went into hypnosis, which I was interested in right away, I wouldn't have had a career. I waited right. till I was a full professor, and then I had a career. We right. know we know that the esteemed Kinsey was the most the most important sex researcher in over a hundred years, maybe since Kraft Ebbing. He was ruined. His career was ruined because he studied sex in the halls of academia at Indiana University. And he died a broken man. Many people don't know that. His funding was taken away from him. Rockefeller turned on him. It was terrible. You had the courage to start studying psilocybin in the dark ages 20 years ago. And somehow you got through the government and you got permission. Tell us a little bit about that, how you did it and how you had the balls to do it. Sure. We stand upon some great giants, of course. And the, Charlie Grubb at UCLA was the first in, in the early 2000s, uh, starting. Same with Hopkins. We, our team formed in 2006. But before that, there was all this conversation we were having. And in 06, Hopkins published their first uh, mystical experience trial. So that helped. It helped with the FDA. It helped with the IRBs that this can be done safely. 
But it was an interesting time. It's not like it was now. It's only been a few years, and it's a completely different landscape. Even after we were approved by the IRB and the FDA and the DEA, we, we were we, we were whispering. It wasn't you didn't talk about this for fear of how it would be perceived, both by internally, but also media, and, and now people talk about it left and right. But yeah, it, it went relatively smoothly. The, the regulatory bodies were very supportive. What they want to see is safety. And they want to see efficacy, but primarily safety. And that was being shown in, in, the, in the Hopkins trial and in the UCLA trial. So there was a foundation to stand upon. And then our trial showed safety as well. And so that went smoother than you would think. But it was, it was, it was, a, new, it was a new era that was beginning. My own interest goes back 40 years because when I was in my 20s. And I grew up discussing death like many children, lying in bed at night frightened of death. We, we just spoke about this. I'm certain that led to my interest in spirituality and religion and meditation. And then in my 20s, discovered this whole body of literature of psychedelics and like all of us, the works of Alan Watts and everyone else from that rich era of, of reading. And uh, I, I, in my mid-20s, knew I wanted to do something in this area. There was nothing happening in the moment. So it was a bad career move. I was going to be a lawyer. Then I changed directions and went to get a PhD in psychology. And I went into palliative care and, and in those areas and was very much transformed and changed by the whole transpersonal psychology movement of the 80s. That was kind of a, a resurgence, late 70s. And so I'm very grateful that it happened. But yeah, those first years were, were, were interesting. And here we are now with, it's talked about every every day. And maybe, and maybe it's going too fast. We'll see. I, I do hope, and all the researchers hope we could keep doing this in a way that's meaningful and, and safe and that the culture at large does not get too far ahead of the research and we we see effects that we saw years ago. Set and setting matter and a careful a careful eye on all this matter. This is this is important stuff and it's it's has to be so let, in a specific way. Excuse me. Let let's talk a drop before we end here about the present political state of psychedelic research. In terms of your sense of the younger scientists around the country that you come in contact with in various ways, what, what, what is their fear level with regard to their academic association, their department, or the university itself finding out that they themselves are experimenting are, the, are, are these young academicians afraid of losing their jobs as we were years ago, or is there less fear nowadays? What What is your guess? I know you're guessing on this, but what's your I'm, guess I'm, on I'm this? I'm guessing, but I'm going to first answer this. You didn't ask the first. I'm going to answer this first. My fear of the new generation, my fear of the field, one of my fears of the field is that this new generation of brilliant young people doing the neuroscientific investigations is that biological reductionism gets to becomes the main conversation and we lose sight of the experience and we lose sight of the phenomenology of these experiences so i'm not a neuroscientist and i my hats off to these brilliant people doing all the imaging studies and what what happens in the brain but what happens in the brain is really interesting and important but equally and if not more importantly in my own perspective is what happens in the mind and that that's that's important and i hope we don't lose sight of that and all this new kind of research going on. So that, that's one of my fears, by the way, of this new generation of, of imaging and all that, that we don't lose sight of the experience itself. This can't just become the new Prozac or 
there are some conversations even of stripping out the mystical experience from it. And th th this is a complex conversation. In terms of them, one, they're, they're not afraid of entering the field. It's a very now, it's a very respectful field and there are centers emerging and postdocs and all that. So that that's certainly not like it was even 15, 20 years ago when we began. That's certainly not a career render. In terms of personal use, I, I, I would not, I, I'd have to speculate. I'm going to speculate that in time that may loosen up and, and there'll be training programs as well for therapists who go in the field, who can have the, the have, it a, have a session in a, in a legal way as part of the training. So they don't have to be secretive about it, but I think we're going in that direction where training centers and training models will incorporate a, a session for the therapist in due time, but we'll see. There's so much unknown at the current moment. We've all had the experience of leaving a meeting or a situation with other people. And after we've left, we have the thought, darn it, I wish I would have said. <laughs> and then we think of something we wish we would have said. So I would like to pause now, which is something that we're told never to do when you're on the air. Don't ever pause because blank time it just scares the listeners and they're liable to switch off or go somewhere else. But anyway, I want to take a slight pause and ask you, if, you were, if we were to finish right now, is there anything that pops into your mind on this topic that we've been on for the last hour that you'd like to add to make sure we get into the interview? Thank you for that. That's, I, wish every, I wish every interview did that. Yeah, Thank there's you. something there's something that I, I I'd like to I guess make very be, be sure I say it clearly. This is a remarkable time in a world putting aside psychedelics. What a what a zeitgeist, what an inflection point, so much so much fluidity, so much going on. But with with this field, I, I and thank you for that. Allow me to say this. I hope you don't lose sight of what I what I feel, at least, that the importance of this is it raises the questions, what is consciousness? Where is consciousness? Why are we here? These experiences are not new. This was discovered in, in some lab a couple of years ago. These are the foundations of the great traditions. We humans seem to have the capacity to be connected to some incredible insights. Why would that be? To what end? Why, why are we wired this way? Why is the human design of consciousness so structured where we have the connection to these experiences that give people insights about death itself, about why we're here, to lose the fear of death, as you mentioned earlier. I hope it'll lose sight of all that. The, 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 the domain that religion and spirituality and philosophy and all of that used to address, and that we just become a new uh, biological inquiry. Those are big questions. What does this mean? And I, I hope we could find ways to house these numinous experiences and and frameworks that could be respectful of that. Not just the psychiatric disorders, but going forward, how do we work with these experiences, particularly at a time when everything just seems really fragile in our, in our world? And not to editorialize here, but the, the whole promise of materialism and consumerism from the 1940s and before didn't, didn't come out to be true, right? The more material things we have didn't seem to be allow us to achieve some pursuit of happiness. Actually, we're, we're dying younger each year now turns out in America of recent years. So there's something more than materialism. There's something about who we are. And I hope these medicines and more importantly, these experiences, it isn't really about the medicine. 
it's the experience that can be had in, in many ways and practices is now lost in this incredibly kind of tender time. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You all want to go to Google. Good. You want to go to Google and type in Anthony Bosis or with respect to his dear dad, Bosis. <laughs> it's pronounced B-O-S-S-I-S, Dr. Anthony Bosis or Bosis. You want to go to Google and check him out. He's got a lot of good stuff that you can learn about with an easy click on your computer. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for participating in today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I look forward to being with you again. Oh, by the way, please go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. I forget to advertise. And look over the archives. We've got some great interviews for you to look at. Check out my recent books, Psychedelic Medicine and the other one, Psychedelic Wisdom, with a couple more coming on soon. One's going to be on end-of-life transitioning with psychedelics. You can look forward to that. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.